I hate San Francisco airport. (laughs) I would be okay if I never stepped foot in San Francisco airport again before I died. Maybe you can relate. Maybe there's a place on this planet where you just have such bad emotional memories you never want to go there again. Maybe it's a certain restaurant that you got food poisoning from and you'll never eat there again. Maybe it's a place you went on vacation on. It was the worst vacation ever. And you tell your spouse or your family, we're never going there ever again. Maybe it was uh, somebody you did business with and you told them, we are never going to use them again. My dad has told me, he said, son, when I die, if you use Davis Cemetery Company in Las Vegas to bury me, I will sit up in the casket in the middle of my funeral and I will curse your name. And so at least we have that one clear. You see, in 2006, I'd gone to San Francisco because I was thinking about moving there. And I had I'd visited a, a seminary outside San Francisco. And it was just one of those amazing times. The weather was amazing. I felt God speaking. I felt like God was leading me to move to San Francisco. And I got back to the airport early. And I ordered a, a lovely burrito from one of the restaurants there. And I sat down. And if you don't know, San Francisco airport is, is one of the most beautiful airports in the world. It's right on the water. I mean, it's picturesque. And so I'm sitting there with my burrito, looking at the ocean. I'm like, this can't get any better. I open my computer up, I check my email, and I get one of those emails. One of those emails that nobody wants to get. One of the, what I call, um, I call them nasty grams. And I just got cut to the core in this email. You see, I'd had this friend and we'd gone through a falling out and, and I had said some really not nice things that had gotten back to that person. And then some rumors had gotten started based upon those nice nice things and had gotten blown out of proportion. And so they just, I mean, they just tore me up. And my appetite went from burrito level to nothing. I mean, I didn't even touch that burrito that day. And I I can still tell you that seat, that booth, that airport. Well, fast forward seven years, and my wife and I are north of San Francisco for our fifth year anniversary. And it's a great trip. We don't have our kids. It's awesome. We get back to the airport. And like many of us, I did something stupid. They just tanked the whole anniversary trip right there. And, uh, and it was just one of those where you have this amazing, amazing trip, and you do something stupid, and it just kind of all falls apart. And that's the day I decided that I hate this airport, and I'm going back to this airport again, and it's just terrible. And maybe you can relate Maybe you've had a moment where you feel like you're on top of the world and in just seconds you feel like the world's on top of you. You feel like you just had this huge victory and then you have a defeat. You feel like you finally made progress and then you feel like you've never made any progress at all. You feel like you're on top of the mountain and then you feel like you're in the middle of the valley. And if if you can relate to that at all today, then this is going to be a message for you. Because I think many of us, when it comes to our families, and we're in a series this month called Flawed Families, many of us have so much hope for our families. We've got so much hope for the relationships that we're in. We, we feel like we have some sense of momentum, and then that momentum comes crashing down. That hope comes crashing down. We've said in this series, if we started last week, if you weren't here, I'll catch you up, that every one of our families is flawed, 
And it's only through those flaws that we experience God's grace. And so, so you might like to say, I wish I didn't have any flaws. Well, if you didn't have any flaws, you'd actually have no opportunity to experience God. And so we're thanking God for our flaws in this series. And last week, we talked about the fact that our response to our flaws determines our experience with God. Well, today we're going to build on that message. And if you got a copy of the handout when you walked in, here's the big idea. That our greatest growth happens during the in-between seasons. It's in those moments that come out of nowhere where we feel like we've gone from the top of the world to the world being on top of us. When we feel like we've gone from the mountain to the valley. When we feel like we've gone from being ahead to being behind. It's actually in those moments and in those seasons where our greatest growth happens. The seasons we would have never asked for become the seasons in which God does what we want the most. And so today we're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It's pretty easy to find. And today we're going to look at a guy's life who you know is Abraham. But in the passage we're going to read, his name is Abram. So I'm just going to give you a heads up. I'm going to call him Abraham at some point in the sermon. I'll probably call him Abraham a lot. So don't keep track of how many that is or tell me, Scott, I got it wrong. I know I'm going to get it wrong today. Just I know this in advance. I'm preparing for failure today. But what I want to talk to you about today is if our greatest growth happens in those in-between seasons, that I want to tell you four things to expect in those seasons. Here's what God's going to do in your life in those seasons. And the first one is this. You're going to have hope because of God's word to us. We can have hope even when we're in the middle of the valley because of God's word to us. Beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, this is what we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and the Lord's and the Father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Lot's his nephew. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, you know her later as Sarah, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now what we see in this part of the text are two really significant things. The first thing is that God calls Abram. Abram is not a worshiper of God. He's not a follower of God. He's what the Bible calls a pagan. You know, what we would call a a notorious sinner. He wasn't somebody who had a relationship with God. And yet God calls him out of a land and a people who didn't worship God. And he calls him out to follow him. And God makes him a number of promises out of that calling. He promises him that he's going to make him a great nation. He promises that he's going to bless him and make his name great. He promises that Abram will be a blessing to others. He promises that those who Abram blesses will be blessed by God. And those who dishonor Abram, God will curse. He says, in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. As I was preparing for this message, one person that I read called these astounding promises. From one person. Every one of us who's lived on planet Earth has been blessed. 
I mean, we all want our life to make a difference, make an impact, but that's astounding. Not only does everybody know Abraham's name, but all of us have been blessed by Abraham. That's crazy. And what God does is he tells Abram, he says, I want you to leave Haran and I want to go, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. Now, now if you don't know this uh, from your study of the Bible, this is, this is this rare moment where God says, hey, I want you to start walking and then I'll tell you where to go. And I don't know how things work at your house, but at my house, if I said, hey, honey, we're going to go on a trip. And I said, my wife said, where are we going? I said, well, I'll tell you when we get started. That would not go very well. And I would get in my car and I would go, well, do I drive east and go to Sedona? Do I drive south and go to Phoenix? Do I drive west and go to LA? Do I drive north and go to Flagstaff? I mean, where do I go? But that's what God said. I want you to step out and follow me and I'll show you where I'm going to take you. And the only reason that Abram does this, the only reason he takes the step is because of the hope he has in God's word. And I believe there's some of you who are here today that maybe even coming to church is a step like that. Maybe in your life, God is calling you to take a step. It doesn't make sense. You don't have all the answers you want. You don't have all the understanding you want. And God is still calling you to take a step. And it may happen for you like it happened for Abram, that on the other side of that step is the understanding you want. On the other side of that step is the clarity you want. On the other side of the step is all of the answers that you want. And if you wait for God to give you all the answers before you take a step, you're going to be waiting for a really long time. But you can have hope because of God's word. Number two, you can have confidence because of seeing God at work. When you're in the middle of an in-between season, when you feel like you're in the middle of a valley and, and what God had promised to do is taking a long time, you can have confidence because of seeing God at work. That's what happens in the life of Abram. Continuing on the passage in verse, verse 5b, it says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at this time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. What's so fascinating here is that Abram gets what all of us want. Not only does he hear from God in the first few verses, but he actually sees God appear to him. And many of you go, well, well I would have confidence in God if God would audibly speak to me. If God would appear right in front of me, of course I would have confidence in him. And yet, what we have here with Abram is an example of what gives us confidence in the future is what we've experienced with God in the past. For many of us, we've actually seen God. We haven't seen the physical manifestation of God, but many of us have experiences in our past where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was real because something happened. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God speaks because we heard him, not in an audible voice, but maybe in a voice that was louder than audible. 
Maybe, maybe what's, what you need to remember when you're thinking about stepping out and following God in a difficult season is not what you're not hearing from God in the moment, but looking back in the past to all those times where he did speak to you. Because what happens here with Abram is he actually gets a little bit of a sneak peek. And in verse 7, it says that the Canaanites were in the land. So he promises to give him this land, but the, the land is not actually possessable by him. Somebody else owns it. And actually, if you know your Jewish history, he won't actually own this land. His, his generations, his descendants will. And yet what God is calling him to do is be confident based upon not what he's seeing, but based upon what God is saying. Now, some of you are going, okay, what does this have to do with me? This feels like a lot of Bible history. All of that is a setup for what's coming next. Point number three, trials happen when adversity begins. No movie, no story, no book gets good until the conflict starts. If everybody got along, if everything went perfect, it'd be a very boring story. And what our goal is in this series, as we walk through our flawed families and we ask God to work through our flaws to bring wholeness and healing, is we need to know that the people in the Bible are just like us. And so many of us know Abraham or Abram as this great, incredible man of faith. And he was, except when he wasn't. And that's what we're going to see next in verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. And so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Sojourn's a word for temporarily travel. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman Sarai was very beautiful. And when the princes of the Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into the Pharaoh's house. For her sake, the Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, I know most of us would not like a gift like this. Christmas is a little over 100 days away, and none of you are putting male and female donkeys and camels on your list. Maybe some of you are, because we live in a rural area a little bit, but, but most of us aren't. But in this day, you could translate this, that he had a vacation house, that he had a fat 401k, that he wore Gucci, that he wore Prada, that he, um, he drove a Bentley and a Tesla. Like that's essentially what they're saying right here. Abram is filthy rich because the Pharaoh is saying, thank you for bringing this woman into my harem. And because Abram lied and said that she was his sister, he's allowed to live he becomes wealthy, and Sarai begins to be prepared to become Pharaoh's wife. And you, you ask yourself, this is the man of God who's in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11? This is the guy that I should model myself after? That when things get hard, he says to his wife, hey, say you're my sister, so they won't kill me. And it's a reminder that we don't know the state of our relationship with God. God. 
until adversity begins. This is the first time we see Abraham or Abram go through anything hard. And when the famine comes, again, the Bible doesn't tell us everything of anybody's life. But what it leaves out and includes is very important. We don't see Abram turn to God. We don't see him pray. We don't see him seek godly counsel. And everything goes downhill. And I I feel for Abram. I mean, God, you brought me here. God, you promised me this land. And now there's no food. We're going to die. He does what a lot of us would do. He takes matters into his own hands. And, And Abram goes from this mountaintop experience where he literally saw and heard God and he saw these promises into the middle of a valley where that moment seems really far away. And what we see here is a biblical process that plays out again and again in the Bible and it plays out again and again in our lives. That there is a moment where we we sense God making a promise. We know that God is a God who keeps his promises, but in the middle, there's this thing that I call the process. And most of our life is not here or here. It's right here. Most of you are not living on top of the mountain of promise. You're not living on top of the mountain of fulfillment. You're in the middle of the process. And most of us quit in the middle of the process. We get discouraged. We get depressed. We get disillusioned. We throw up our hands. We abandon faith in the middle of the process. And yet, this is where all the growth happens. Think about your past. Did you grow the most when everything was going amazingly? Did you grow the most when everything was up and to the right? Did you grow the most when you had the best job and got paid the most and lived in the biggest house? You and your spouse, did you grow the most when you had everything at your hands and your fingertips? Or did you grow the most when you were in the middle of this process, when you were in the middle of the valley? See, we actually grow the most in the middle of those trials. And we need those moments on the mountain, but we live most of our lives in the valley. And before we judge Abram, too much, technically what he said was true. It was a half lie. Because in Genesis 20, 12, we do learn that Sarai is actually his half-sister. He says, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. If you're looking for a Bible verse about Arkansas, there it is right there. I know, I know, I know, I know. It was just too easy. It was just too easy. It was either that or West Virginia. I just had to pick. It was 50-50. So you go, Scott, he told a truth, but it was kind of a lie. That's what some commentators said. Because they were trying to justify it. And before we judge Abraham, we do the same thing. It isn't that bad that I do this. We justify it in our head. It it isn't that much of a compromise if I take this. God's not doing anything, so somebody's got to do something, right? 
and we justify it. See, when we go through a season of trials, some really interesting things start happening. I made a list here. I didn't want to forget. Trials reveal flaws. Trials reveal flaws in yourself and in your relationships. Trials also reveal counterfeit gods. You know those things you turn to other than God to sustain you through it? You know what your God is by what you turn to when things get hard. You might not like calling it a God, but you're looking for it to sustain you the way that God does. Trials bring temptations. See, it wasn't until Abram was in a trial that he was tempted to trust in himself and to lie. Some of you are in a trial right now. And you need to be aware of temptation. What are you being tempted to do in the middle of the trial or the valley? Trials can cause us to seek God or to pull away from God. And trials always follow triumphs. So if you're on top of the world right now, beware. A trial's coming. Because God does his best work in the middle of the valley. And while he's preparing you for something, he's preparing something for you. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Screwtape Letters. He says, now it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts, that's God, to get permanent possession of a soul, God relies on the troughs even more than on the pinks. Some of his favorites, his special favorites, have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. It is during such trough periods, much more than during peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Abraham, Moses, Job, David, even Jesus went through a long trough. And so if you're in the middle of a season with your family that you got a little bit of hope, you got a little bit of faith that you think it's possible that God might bring change there, beware that that hope and faith might run headlong into a trial. It's not because you're some, somehow special, you know? It's not because you're somehow unique. This is what God does with everybody. And this is where the American dream runs headlong into the Bible and you have to decide what you believe. Because the American dream says it's only in those happy seasons and those healthy seasons and those abundant seasons you should live. And you should avoid those seasons that are trials and troughs. You have to decide, am I going to be more a follower of Jesus or more a follower of this culture? Because this book does not make sense according to many of our national values. And yet, if you embrace the way that God works, what he will do is he will bring you from the promise into the process and he will fulfill it if you don't give up. Number four, God is more committed to his promise than we are. This is the good news. 
even though Abram, like Noah and everybody else we're going to study in this series, has a moment where they compromise, we learn in this story that God is actually more committed to his promise than we are. God's more committed to it coming true than we are. And in verse 17, it says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Kind of a foreteller what's to come in Exodus, if you know your Bible. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God has to bail out Abram. (laughs) And Abram gets a lecture about trusting God from the most pagan Pharaoh on earth. This is an ironic moment. Sometimes God uses the most ungodly people to speak truth to his people. I mean, how embarrassing is it? This is supposed to be the guy through whom God is going to bless the whole earth. And God has to use Pharaoh to tell him the truth. And what we learn here is that God is more committed than we are. See, even though Moses should have been committed to the process, because it was supposed to be Sarah who was going to have his child that was going to lead to all these great nations, God has to intervene and say, hey, guess what, Moses? I made the promise. You're in the middle of the process. But guess what? I'm going to bring this to fulfillment, not you, even if you're sinful. So in your family, your family may be flawed because of you. It may be your flaws that are holding your family back. And guess what? God's grace is greater than your sin. You can't out-sin the grace of God. And many of us wrestle with this one question, how do I figure out God's will for my life? And one of the the sub-beliefs under that question is that somehow if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to screw up God's will for my life. Friends, guess what? You're just not that powerful. You're not. And if God's more committed to his promise than you are, and his grace is greater than your sin, then guess what? Even in the midst of your bad decisions and your flaws, God is going to carry out his promise. God's bigger than your knuckle-headed moments. He's bigger than your worst moments. And he's faithful even when you're not. So, back to San Francisco International Airport. Summer of 2006, I get that nasty Graham email. I can't go back and change what I said, but you know what I can do? I can change what I do moving forward. So that day, I committed I was not going to say one more negative word about that person. And I didn't. I didn't know if the relationship would ever come back. I didn't know if they ever changed their opinion of me. I didn't know if all their friends would continue to not like me. But guess what? I could control what I could control. And so I made a commitment at that table over that uneaten burrito. No more negative words. Three months later, I went out to my parking lot where I was living, and there was a note underneath my windshield. And I recognized the handwriting right away from that same person who wrote me that email. And the letter opened up, and it said, Scott, 
I'm sorry. You hurt me. And so I hurt you back. You caused me pain. And so I brought the pain back to you. But I've been watching you over the last three months. And you're not the person you were when I wrote that email. I don't know if we're ever going to live in the same place again. But I just wanted to ask for your forgiveness. And tell you I'm sorry. And tell you I've seen you change. I didn't deserve that note. But nearly every time I I change up my windshield wipers on my car, I think about that note. Some of you made a mess of things when it comes to your past. You went to Egypt. You lied. You took matters into your own hands. But we serve a God who's more committed to his promise than we are. We serve a God whose grace is greater than our sins. And we serve a God who is faithful even when we're not. And he does his best work in the middle of the in-betweens if we'll let him do that work. On the back of your handout, there's some next steps I want to encourage you to take today. The first one is I want you to open up your Bibles this week and build a list of verses which remind you of who God has promised to be in the middle of your current valley. You can use your friend Google or your favorite Bible website, or a thing called a concordance, and look up promises about who God is. Not who you are, not how great you are, but who God is in the midst of your current valley and adversity. Number two, I want you to recall the places where you've seen God at work. Because you may not feel like God is at work where you are right now, and you need to remember that there were times and moments where you saw him so that you can trust in those moments where you don't see. Number three, I want you to name the trials and temptations you're facing today. What does your valley look like? What are the things that you're tempted to do? What, What are the trials that you're currently in? Define that. And then number four, I want you to talk to someone who will encourage you and remind you of what you've forgotten. I have to believe that part of the reason that Abram bought into the temptation is part of the reason that Eve did. Because they were alone. And when you are isolated, you are more vulnerable to temptation. That's how we bang the group's drum so hard around here. Because none of us are strong enough on our own. We need those reminders. I want to close with a a quote that I was reminded of this week, also from C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. This is the enemy. This is, he kind of personifies our enemy, Satan, in this book, who says, Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe which every trace of him seems to vanished asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. You want to know how we win? In the midst of the valley where it doesn't seem like God is at work, in the midst of the struggle that has knocked us down, we choose to believe that God is more committed than we are. We choose to believe that God's grace is greater than our sin, and we choose to believe that God is faithful even when we're not. And when that happens, God does great things, growing us 
and making us like him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.